It's February 17, 1923, and the world sits in anticipation as the wonders of an ancient era are uncovered. British archaeologist Howard Carter, along with his team, have unsealed the chamber containing the tomb of Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. This momentous find might prove to be the greatest and most significant archaeological discovery of our time. But we're not here to talk about that, Luis. No, we're not. Welcome to In Other News, the podcast where we don't look at the headlines of history. Rather, we look in between the lines of newspapers of yesteryear. My name is Luis Mejia, and I am joined by the wonderful Elena Richards. Hi, Luis. And today, we have big headlines. Today, several years ago, almost 100 years ago, in February 17th, King Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered by Howard Carter. And that's the big news of the day. That unleashed a, a great amount of wonder and, and excitement about archaeology. It reinvigorated. Don't forget that it was also so colonialism. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I laugh, but the one these headlines, the gem-studded rooms of King Tut, it's like, oh, it's grave robbing of, a, of an elite <laughs> Englishman's stature. So as, as we spoke last time, we are very soon after the death of Queen Victoria. So this is still not, not necessarily the height of British colonialism, but still a great product of it. We're post-World War One. We are post-World War One, and we are post-Spanish flu around the world, some could say. Three years out, one publication said. Everyone's going out there into the world once more and going crazy, Elena. Really, going wild. Going stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everyone's financing these great expeditions, like Lord Carnarvon financed Howard Carter to go to Egypt and find this place. However, this brought big news into the world, Elena, because King Tut, as you know, his tomb was sealed for over a thousand years, and the seal was broken, supposedly releasing a curse into the world, the curse of King Tut. And Lord Carnarvon actually died of a, a sudden illness. And everyone was saying, what's going to happen? Is this a curse sent from beyond times? You know what? We are not perturbed by that fact, Elena. Not at all. Because the world continued to turn and people continued to go about their lives <laughs> despite King Tut's tomb being... Uh, desecrated i guess louise i'm not a a superstitious person necessarily but i do believe in spirits and like not touching mm -hmm. what's not meant to be touched and nothing in history i think compares to the riches that were found in king Tut's tomb i think it was so famous because of that just the excavation of his body finding out how young he was kind of filling in those holes of like the anomaly of this young pharaoh and then just everybody getting excited about how freaking rich he was and it's just one rich guy paying his respects to a, another rich guy in history only to end up dead from a mysterious illness that was most likely caused by a mosquito <laughs> um but as we do not as we are not the superstitious kind and we really don't care about the curse of king tut maybe that's uh, danger for a potential future us but we're not going to be dealing with king tut's tomb discovery rather we have other news for you yes so elena have you got news for me well in other news besides the the riches of egypt the year is uh, 1923 in the united states and it's post-world war one it's the 20s which some might say were roaring in our great puritan mm -hmm. nation and 
alcohol was prohibited. So these girls in Albuquerque took it to another level. The headline reads, Albuquerque girls ban jazz dancing, cooing, and smokes. Cooing? Right. What is cooing? 400 <laughs> members of the Albuquerque High School Girls League have banned jazz dancing, petting parties, which is essentially getting too close, and cigarette smoking. The organization today passed the following resolution. We hereby resolve to do all we can to prevent the practice of the following. One, jazz dancing specifically, by which is meant dancing that involves unnecessarily bodily contact and that which might appear vulgar to the onlooker because God forbid you touch another person in public. Two, the allowing of familiarities at parties, dancing, dances, automobile rides, etc. So cooing is familiar familiarities like these words of the time are dancing around the subject of courtship and like peacocking and all of these thing other things i assume because we all know that courtship did not exist at this time no not real not real it, yeah it would be decades <laughs> until men were ever <laughs> trying to get women in any way to be their mm -hmm. partners mm -hmm. dark times 1923 so I, this article is interesting because Compared to our last talk with uh, Queen Victoria's death in 1901, now it's the 20s, stuff is progressing a little bit. New Mexico as a state now has official publications and papers that are publishing regularly. And the fact that this girls' league kind of advocating in the same grain of temperance that we had in, in 1901, like same, same song, different tune about yeah. what women are against in terms of what is appropriate in society and what is and is not allowed. So plus we have we have uh, suffrage. We have women's suffrage right. this time. Right. Exactly. Too. Yeah, they just passed the 19th amendment. White women can vote legally. Well, non-white women still fight for their own rights. Um, and honestly, this doesn't say what the Albuquerque girls high school girls league is composed of racially but i'm assuming it's mostly white women at this point most likely and against jazz dancing specifically too which is coded for the fact that jazz came out of black american communities it's like seeing it as vulgar is like okay so we're talking the town from footloose now these religious people who see any kind of fun that's free and hip moving as sinful of the devil. Of the devil. The, de <laughs> the devil has possessed you to dance to jazz. Man, people from this time really would not like reggaeton. Pereo? Mm -mm. <laughs> really, really if, if, if jazz is getting them a little bit too intense, imagine if, if we get a, a explicitly African-inspired dance. <laughs> Did, what, 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 new, what newspaper was this from? You said it was from New Mexico, correct? It was the Arizona Republican. So it was published in Phoenix, even though it's about Albuquerque, which I attribute to the fact that it's, it's the Southwest. Like, it's essentially one region reporting on each other, much like the Midwest would be at this point. If the Girls League in Albuquerque is banning dancing, like, pfft, they're coming for your jazz in Phoenix, too. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> in other news from across the country in Pennsylvania, I, I, I have some, some stories from you. So February 17th, 1923 was in fact a Tuesday, but not just any Tuesday. It was in fact Shrove Tuesday, which uh, most of us would commonly know it today as Mardi Gras. The day when we engorge ourselves before we enter this Catholic Lenten period of, of, of penance and, and uh, giving things up. Exactly. Exactly. In, in good Catholic fashion. <laughs> On this Tuesday in particular, over in Reading, Pennsylvania, the Reading Eagle 
has on their front page, on the headline, Donut and Fasnacht Day. My favorite. 300,000 baked and consumed in Reading. A little bit of context. Mm-hmm. A Fasnacht is, from what I, from what I researched, a, a dessert coming from Germany, meaning like a dessert before fasting or a dessert to have uh, fast and Nacht. Nacht means night. So the night before you fast. The opposite of breakfast. <laughs> right, exactly. It's essentially a pochki. If you know the, the Polish dessert also had on Fat Tuesday, mm-hmm. it's a donut. It, it's, just, it's just a donut, essentially. So 300,000 baked and consumed in Reading, Pennsylvania. And the story reads, This being Shrove Tuesday, it is the day that the appetizing fast knock reigns supreme. And the edible was found on the tables of many homes and featured in all the restaurants in the city. There was a time when practically every housewife in Reading and the county made her own Fasnachts, and those were the days for the large, crisp, palatable kind that are now more a memory than a fact. Mm. The good cooks of the home, including grandmother, fried them in quantities as they did Christmas cakes and with syrup or molasses, as all called this garnishing then, were a most delicious article. This is the first paragraph, Elena. And, and there's more. Did that man just, fuck a donut? I, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> it's mouthwatering. It continues. While the farmer's wives still make the old-fashioned kind to a great extent, it is not so much the case anymore with city people. Not that hundreds have not been engaged in that pursuit for the last several days, but it has by no means been as general as in the days when present young fathers and mothers were boys and girls. Mm, the nostalgia. <laughs> it's really saying it's really saying these people right now who are, are showing all this decadence from the city. <laughs> Are, are, are bringing our, our good traditions down. Really a, a nice conservative headline about donuts. You'd think it's over by now. It continues. Ugh, so exciting. Instead, the custom has been largely delegated to the modern baker, and despite the high price of lard for frying and the ingredients entering into the baking, their output was large today, and the price as reasonable as could be expected. And it continues essentially listing how... An estimated number of how many donuts were made. Uh, it says that this specific, uh, this bakery reported a combined scale of between 11,000 and 12,000 dozens. Uh, another bakery had 8,000 dozens. Another one had 1,500 dozens. And then it says, these were the sales. Those fried at home for private consumption would bring the figures up to 25,000 dozens or 300,000 donuts. This would allow less than three to each man, woman, and child of the city's population and is regarded as conservative. They- this is not done yet, Elena. It continues. Oh, I'm so happy. I don't want it to end. According to tradition, Fasnags had to be eaten by everyone for breakfast today to ward off ill luck for another year. Mm. For the unlucky one last out of bed, there is no hope, according to an old belief. He or she will be lazy all year. But the chances are many. Reading people got up this morning never thinking about Fasnacht Day, and if they did, they were not much concerned about what would happen to them during the coming 12 months, even if they happened to be the last to tumble from their warm covers. 
And that's it. It really it's a it's a nice heartwarming story from from the Reading Eagle in Pennsylvania. It's got everything. Uh, There's some quick maths. We're just supposed to trust that that act equals to three hundred thousand. I'm not going to fact check them. I mean, this person is also going as far as saying that the private consumption of these donuts. He he is estimating just exactly how many. How many donuts were prepared? It's like an at-home COVID test. It's like the number of people testing positive is probably way higher. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, but it's great that it, it goes. You you like you said it, it goes through math. It goes through local customs. It goes through complaining about the big city. Yes. Uh, and it ends up with local traditions and customs. I think that's it has a little bit of everything. And of, apparently the author found it important enough that it not only is on the front page of the Reading Eagle, but it's in the middle. Oh, like it's the first story that I will go to. Man, I also just... A cultural piece about donuts for Mardi Gras having so much like subtext about politics basically at the time is just like mm, delish yeah. and, and i think it's it's interestingly i don't know if hypocritical or ironic but the fact that the author is complaining about decadence and excess in an article about decadence and excess <laughs> yes right yeah he's simultaneously saying like oh my god yay so many donuts and also like the city people, like, they're so obsessed with decadence that they don't even care about the donuts anymore. Exactly. And at the same time, it's bragging that there were more than 300,000 donuts made in the city. It's made up. The it's... problem does not exist. Yeah, so those are those are the big news in Reading, Pennsylvania. I love it. I also, it's like, this guy is getting so excited in Pennsylvania about donuts the same day that the uncovering of a tomb in Egypt, like, two kinds of decadence were on people's minds across the world today. Mm -hmm. And I would argue the mm -hmm. donut one is significantly less harmful than releasing a, <laughs> a curse from an unopened tomb. A curse onto the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, in other news, Luis, the influenza situation. So the Bourbon News in Kentucky published a piece saying that with regard to the prevalence of influenza and grip, Again, in this city, the local physicians state that there have been only a few cases developing of, of pneumonia and that they have the situation well in hand, that disease here has been in a very mild form only, and so far there have been no serious results. The physicians say the situation here is by no means alarming and that by the exercise of a reasonable degree of caution and care, people may avoid the disease. The changeable weather is said by the physician to be responsible in a large measure for the prevalence of the disease. For this reason, persons should take good care to avoid exposure and be on guard against their sneezing, coughing, expectorating neighbors. So. Wow. Again, not a lot of variation from um, 1901, but I think this piece post-Spanish influenza and, you know, the mm -hmm. modern context of us tracing pandemics, the the amount of like reassurance in this article and like just trust the reader is supposed to have that the physicians mm -hmm. are the experts and like this is public health communication essentially in 1923 yeah. um in kentucky and so the influenza situation is still the headline like there's there's a situation that has been established but it's this tiny little side piece um like on page five like it wasn't headline news it wasn't the big thing so somehow the influenza situation is not as big four years out of it starting which is reassuring but also kind of just like 
there's not one name given to it too. I feel like it just wasn't as much of a over-encompassing thing as it would be now. And I don't know if that's because of severity or what. But you're right about making those those connections because sure, maybe back then there were more localized cases and it didn't have the global reach that uh, the current pandemic we're facing and has now. But at the same time, you can see that outbreaks are still happening. Right. Several years away from the from the initial big, big outbreak of the Spanish pandemic right. across the world, right? I, I like the way that this is written, the the article you write is written, because it's it's not only writing about the the dangers and potential just damage that this grip, that this influenza can cause, but also it's saying it in 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 a reassuring tone. As in as if it was saying we went through this before. We don't want to go through it again, but we handled the last one well, and we want to stay safe. Right. I Yeah, you touched on that too, like the fact that it's a continuation of the same thing essentially, but there is a little bit of that it's it's over. Like this was in another – the same paper talked about like, oh, the influenza – the, the epidemic that happened like a few years ago. Like they're talking about it like it's over, even though cases of influenza still exist. Like you were saying, it's ongoing. This kind of mental transition from, okay, it's over, but still be, still take care to keep your distance or whatever. Um, it's just like, oh, it's called living with it and, you know, still doing life while being cautious. As we know, the news are held together by ads. Uh, they are today as they have always been. And a hundred years ago, they, these news were also very much supported by ads. So the news that you are hearing today from us, they're brought to you by places like Misseldine's Pharmacy in Tyron, North Carolina. Our soda fountain has been thoroughly overhauled, a new stove installed for heating water and sterilizing glasses, spoons, etc., Pure fruit juices and best quality of ice cream at Misseldine's Pharmacy, Tyron, North Carolina. Also brought to you by Snyder's. Catsup, tomato soup, pork and beans. Also chili sauce. Chas H. Morehouse, wholesale grocer and distributor. So in Lakeland, Florida, Snyder's is telling you exactly where you can get your American diet of ketchup, tomato soup, pork and beans. Who says that Americans don't have culture? But if you've had enough of your pork and beans and think it's time to start your own garden, well, you're in luck because Andrews Brothers advertises seeds, 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 just derived, flower seeds, garden seeds, onion sets, quality counts. Andrews Brothers, Tryon, North Carolina. And then out of New York, we have the tried and true Philadelphia cream cheese, untouched by hands. Molded and wrapped by machinery. From the cow to your table. Our wonderful machine, which automatically molds and wraps, is our own invention. Philadelphia is the only cream cheese not wrapped by hand. It is produced under absolutely sanitary conditions. Be sure that Philadelphia is on the label. So, Philadelphia cream cheese, notorious for still being the most well-known cream cheese brand, is advertising in New York. While you're bumping up against your partner at the Jazz Club, you can eat your cream cheese with care, knowing that it hasn't been touched by human hands. Right. I'm wondering this is also a holdover of the, the 1919 uh, pandemic. It's just this like, emphasis on sanitation in your food is kind of like, oh, maybe we should start caring about how clean the stuff we're eating is. 
In other news, in St. Petersburg, Florida, the news reads from the St. Petersburg Times, Brolier to sing song of this city. Scotch Highlander tenor to sing composition of local woman at concert tonight. The first public presentation of The Sunshine City, St. Petersburg song composed by Mrs. Maudina Herbert of this city, will be made tonight at the Scotch Highlanders concert when the song will be sung by Bobby Brolier, Scotch tenor. Mrs. Herbert has allowed her composition to be sung at several private concerts this winter, but it has not been publicly heard. Brolier will repeat it at the Sunday afternoon concert in the park. The song was composed by Mrs. Herbert last year, and as she expressed it, it is her impression of the Sunshine City. It brings in typical characteristics of the city and its people, and it has a catchy melody. Aww. It's just a sweet little little story uh, of, of a woman proud of being from St. Petersburg, Florida. Yeah, for some reason, pride in one's place is a lot more wholesome when it's a local city rather than like a national anthem like she's not writing about yeah. the pride of the united states she's like nah the sunshine city st petersburg florida exactly. i need to write it a love song what i found very interesting about this story is that i i went searching for this song the sunshine city and as happy as i would be to tell you that i have a recording ready to show you elena mm. I'm afraid it's been lost to time. Oh, no. Uh, there are no records of Mrs. Maudina Herbert. There are no records of this composition from St. Petersburg. And while that is, is I guess, incredibly sad or, or disappointing, I find this piece of news that much more captivating. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It's telling us... Uh, uh, this is probably the only place where you'll find written down the fact that this woman composed a song about St. Petersburg and that it was being sung. Yeah. And nowhere else. And it was important enough for the people of St. Petersburg to publish it in their newspaper. I like this idea that there's a local song that was kind of known. It was known to have been performed privately. And people were so wrapped up in it locally that they wanted a public performance and so they did it in a park like this kind of communal like not even a session but like interest in this song mm -hmm. and like that exact like you said it makes it that much more special i think this article is not just preserving the song itself but also the reception of it yeah no it, i it, it makes me it makes me even a little bit emotional you know to 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 know that that they were proud that a tenor from out of town was going to sing their song. Yeah. These people in St. Petersburg, Florida, did not care that Howard Carter had found a mummy. They didn't. They, they were much more excited to hear a composition of one of their own residents. And I find that lovely. In other news, Luis, out of the Seattle Star in Seattle, Washington, we have an international piece about an American abroad not in Paris, in Buenos Aires. But here we go, February 17th. Thomas Ellis, an American, was confined here for three months, awaiting trial for stealing a $500 diamond ring. During this time, the authorities could not find the ring. They searched Ellis daily and even x-rayed him. When the case was called, Ellis laid the ring on the clerk's desk and taunted the police. He was convicted. <laughs> I didn't read the title. The title of the article is, Anyway, He Had His Own Little Laugh. 
Oh man, the international criminals. The first thing this reminds me of is Ryan Lochte, Ryan Lochte destroying property when he went to the Rio Olympics and just like having to deal with international courts. And it's just like, it was absurd when he did it, but it's funny when Thomas Ellis steals a ring and then yeah. he said three months. In Argentina. He waited, he was in prison in Argentina for three months before owning up to it just so he could have his little joke about like, ha ha, you couldn't find it. Also, they did an x-ray. Like, where was it? <laughs> did he have the ring in his person the whole time? He couldn't have, right? Like, was it up his asshole and the x-ray didn't find it? Like, what? <laughs> How many places on your body do you have to hide something? That's incredible. I I wonder how was this person's uh, Spanish level mm-hmm. to tell Argentinian authorities, suck it, you know, essentially. After three months? There must have been some kind of uh, time limit. Like, it's like, okay, we can only hold him for three months. If we don't find the ring, we got to let him go. And so when he was finally released, he put it on the table and was immediately convicted. <laughs> oh, well, boy, you ca- you got us, man. Sorry. Anyway, let you go. I apologize. He had his own little laugh. <laughs> yeah, he had his own little laugh. Oh, that's Love amazing. Love that title. It's just like, it doesn't... It, the only thing it alludes to is the his gotcha. Well, Elena... I can tell you also that at this point, 1922, or 1923, really, we are past the woes of the First World War, right? Uh, all those troubles, all those troubles have come and gone, and and they're kind of in the backseat, right? At this point, people are believing that not a, another war like this cannot happen. But I think you'll find that there are some inklings of something going on around the world the winds in the east i don't know the rest of that song but it's from mary poppins yeah (laughs) so for a little bit of context at this point in time mussolini is already the uh chancellor of italy he is he is in charge of italy at this point and his fascist government is taking shape uh soon after the end of the first world war this is an article from February 17th in the Montreal Gazette, mm. okay? Now, the Montreal Gazette says, Washington arms pacts ratified by Italian Senate. Treaty of Santa Margarita also approved yesterday. Cancellation of debts. Mussolini believes this would be excellent but impracticable measure Things Entente Crisis Acute. As you may remember, the allies from the First World War was the Triple Entente, made up of mostly France, England, and Russia. Mm. So this is what, what it says. Ten days ago, the Italian Chamber of Deputies approved the Washington Treaties for the Limitation of Armaments and the Treaty of Santa Margarita for the settlement of the Adriatic problem with Yugoslavia. After only one day's discussion for each, today the Senate beat that record by approving both on the same day. The chief interest, as usual, centered in Premier Mussolini, who made a vigorous and warmly applauded speech to the Senate, in which he expressed himself in rather gloomy terms about the inter-allied debts and the European situation in general, but was hopeful about the Adriatic situation and about the future of Italy. I'll stop there real quick. At this point, Washington, the U.S., had sent a treaty up, uh, to sign to Italy uh, asking them to disarm, mm. to avoid arming again for another war. 
And this is saying that Italy said, all right, into it. I will, I will not continue to build my army. However, I find that the Entente is lacking in, in backbone, essentially. It continues with a quote from, from Mussolini. The appeal of the American Senator Bora, Signor Mussolini said, has not excessive importance. I have assured information and have come to the conclusion that there is no need or reason to precipitate ourselves to accept his fantastic invitations, but there is a new situation which is bound to freeze all our enthusiasm. America and England have agreed about their debts. I believe that debt cancellation would be an excellent measure, but the relations between people are not yet as to permit its adoption. Mussolini expressed the view that the crisis in the Entente was now in its most acute face. What one asks oneself, Mussolini said, is whether there is still such a thing as an Entente and whether there will continue to be one in the future. I believe I don't exaggerate when I say that there is not a single problem, a single fact on which the Entente agrees. So Mussolini is going, is saying, Okay, I will secede to what you're telling me to do. However, this is not me agreeing that you are a powerful enough presence to tell me what to do. And whatever happens, if a war were to break out again, I, I cannot guarantee that you will come out fine. So this is being seen as a bit of a threat, right? Uh, Mussolini is saying, okay, watch out because... You are not you are not the boss of me, essentially. Right. This is a very diplomatic way of saying, like, all right, we'll stand down, but not because yeah. of you. And one can imagine at this point, 1923, the war is behind you. The next war is really not in the horizon at all. No. This is this is just seen as international politics, you know, uh, as just a oh, okay, great. Italy won't do anything for. The coming future, and that's amazing. But now, with 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 the hindsight we have currently, it is, I don't know. It's a little bit eerie. It's a little bit uncomfortable to read this and and saying how this very clearly was setting a scene to what would come later. Now, before before I, I end this, it continues. It's a rather rather long article from from the Montreal Gazette. Mussolini proceeded to speak. If we had coal mines, he said, if we had acquired German colonies in this war, if we possessed vast gold reserves, we might permit ourselves the luxury of being very generous in our dealings with Germany. But we must work and sweat in order to live. After this, you will readily understand that we could not be absent from Germany's territory. I think it is always well to be present everywhere because in politics, the unexpected may happen at any time. France and Germany might have to come to an understanding about coal and then our absence would have been criminal. So it, this continues really. It, it goes for, for a good long while, mm -hmm. uh, but it finishes with the following quote from Mussolini. We must never believe that anything is irreparable. Ancient Rome did not believe that the defeat at Cannae was irreparable. Rome fell, but she rose again. So must Italy prepare her spirit and her strength to dominate her future destiny. 
I get chills down my spine when I read that yeah. just because it is so clear to see not just Italy's Mussolini's way of speaking to captivate his audience, but you can really tell how the fascist ideology is developing quickly. This idea of working to live, this idea of, of being hard workers, earning the land that you have, and this idea of never giving up and living up to the glory of the once mighty Roman Empire. In, in 1923, this might have just seemed silly. This might have just seemed hyperbolic. But looking back at what came of it, yeah. it really is... is is a little a little unnerving it's so interesting too because it's the reference to rome and then mussolini's ownership over being the person who's speaking for italy like italy as we as we know it under mussolini's regime had only been like a unified nation for like 50 years at this point like maybe 60 years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the, right. the history of that is important in this context as well just the the nationalism that he's speaking to is a new thing for yeah. Italian messaging as well. Like post World oh, War One, the the debts the debts that Italy has to pay or whatever. Um, Germany, they're, they're talking about erasing debts at one point. That's what they agreed. That, that's from France, France and England. Okay, right. And so just I said this focus on national debt is something that's post Great War also. Um, and, and I and I and I really like how it's mentioning Germany as this inferior power yes. at the time, right? It, it, it really shines a light on how Germany, from everyone else's perspective, was not a issue right. anymore. Right. They were like, oh, weak <laughs> right. little Germany. We'll let them do their thing. They got so, they're burning their money. Their inflation's so high. Like, they're wrecked. Exactly. And at this point, at this point, Mussolini is saying, is, is mining, is using coal mines in Germany. Mm. So he is, he is saying, I'm going to be in Germany if I want to. Germany would be mad at me, or, or Germany would hate it if I wasn't here because they wouldn't know that they have these resources here that I'm able to get from you. And Germany, you should actually be grateful that I'm going into your territory. It's quite bold for a world leader to say this, you know, and have it be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the precursor. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and just, again, to, to look at this with the hindsight we have now, it just makes this so, uh, so nefarious. You know, so I don't know. It gives me chills, really. It gives me yeah. like frightened chills, not excited chills, but freaking out chills. When you read that final quote, uh, I had a chill as well. Just like actual quotes from world leaders prior to the most infamous thing they've ever done is such an interest. Like, yeah. I mean, that's like the, the obsession with Hitler being an art student before he was the mm -hmm. man that he became. Mm -hmm. It's just like... <laughs> and, and I actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because you can tell why people liked Mussolini mm -hmm. at this point, right? You can tell his popularity. The article even begins that when he started talking, it says right here, uh, Mussolini, who made a vigorous and warmly applauded speech to the Senate, right? He was seen as a reinvigorating force for Italy, uh, asking them to remember the might of their own history from so much so long ago mm -hmm. that you can, it, he really sounds like a very charismatic guy 
which of course is a feature of any potential dictator. Yeah. I like what you said about like him focusing on like the fascism of working for what you got, like that kind of capitalist into totalitarian belief because I I wrote it in our notes here, but also in the United States at the time, the presidency being what it was, President Harding, um, who is president in the U.S. in 1923, is in the middle of a scandal of like political governmental bribes and like the financial bribery of the oil industry and like these big barons who were trying to influence the government. Like the president of the United States at the time looked weak in like he was being controlled by these other rich people in the country. And for Mussolini to come out and be like this like leader of the country, I mean, not probably we know like corrupt himself and his own drunk on power. But for that, those words to be coming from the greatest leader rather than from just the richest person in the country at the time, it's he's embodying both of that. And I, I, I I'm gonna go on a, on a limb here to say this, but I had the opportunity to be in Rome for some time, and what I find most interesting is that on in in Italy, unlike places like Germany that completely denounce their fascist roots like they don't they don't forget about it but they try to hide it as much as they can Mm -hmm. or 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 move on from it my 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 feeling from being in italy for uh uh, several months was you can tell that people are somewhat still nostalgic to mussolini's rule the entrance to the current uh, sporting complex in uh, rome is a obelisk bearing the name of Mussolini. And it's still there uh, in, in this great arena that has a bunch of, of tiles making out different stories from Rome's history. And it continues to preserve uh, fascist Mussolini propaganda in the floors. It says the fa- fascism on there and it says phrases like duce annoy like duke come to us you know to our help and it and it shows displays of people working the earth and working hard to maintain the greatness of the empire and that comes from this man saying we will be the empire we once were yeah you know and um and yeah there's even a joke that the roman the roman uh, soccer team lazio their fans are fascists. I'm, I'm not saying they are, but there's a joke. That's that the hyperbole. There was one time I asked someone, who do you support? Uh, uh, Roma, the, um, the other Roman team, or Lazio? And he said, Roma, of course, I am not a fascist. <laughs> and I, I'm, as much as it's a joke, during some of the games, they chant fascist chants. They chant Mussolini era uh, war cries, essentially. Man. And... It's it's wonderful that you can start to tell that nostalgia for the might of Rome starting here a hundred years ago, you know, that to this day is still palpable. Yeah, like the that makes the article that much more hilarious and like foreboding because of that context of current Italy. Like, yes, when Mussolini was looking at the greatest empire of all time being the Roman Empire, modern-day Italians can now add Mussolini's regime to kind of that same category of powerful moments when Italy was 
on the world stage being talked about because of its power. Like, regardless of whether it was moral or not, or like any kind of good thing, the power itself was huge. And like, the fact that you said you recognize the kind of nostalgia for that is just like, oh, so sweet with this 1923 article. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't know. It, it's just a lot to 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 unpack there. Yeah, that's um, but a good one. You found a good yeah, one. But you know what? I think as we as we wrap up these these news, I think we we should bring up a little bit the spirits, not end on a fascist dictator. I think a, a good place to 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 close out is telling you uh, some some social notes of New York, uh, some of the of the happenings from that time, February seventeenth. Yeah, so these are some of the social notes from the New York Times of February 17, 1923. Mrs. Frederick Nelson has recovered from her illness and had luncheon yesterday at the plaza with her granddaughter, Miss Kathleen Vanderbilt. Love to hear it. That's nice. Yeah. We also have uh, Mrs. Greenville Kane of Tuxedo Park gave a luncheon yesterday at Pierre's. Her guests, including Mrs. John Wolfe, Mrs. Joseph Peter Hogay, and Mrs. Charles Joseph E. Winslow. Mrs. Charles Joseph E. Winslow. Can't believe they got her to go. She's always there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she loves these kinds of events. She's a lady who lunches. And lastly, in case you've been meaning to reach the Smith family, I just want to let you know that Mr. and Mrs. R.A.C. Smith will leave Tuesday for an extended trip in the South. After visiting at St. Petersburg, they will make a yachting, yachting tour of the islands off the Florida coast. Buen viaje. Yeah, buen viaje. Don't, don't go reaching the Smith family. They're off. Um, so there you have it. Some, some little, little, little gossip to brighten the news just to keep you going until next week. The newspaper gossip <laughs> is so sweet because in the publications that I've read some of them, it's just like... This it reminds you that this paper is local enough that you can publish one name and like multiple people will be mm-hmm. like, "Hey, honey, like they're going on their cruise. Remember they were talking about it? We should send them a letter wishing them safe travels." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope they're fine. And uh, I think with that, we are we have been we have successfully looked at how the dreadful curse of the tomb of King Tut have not reached these parts of the world and yet to this day have not attacked us. So while uh, some parts of the world are thinking of the of what could happen to them because of the curse that came from this unsealing of the tomb or the great riches they could make from the un- unforeseen treasures of this tomb, we can also be glad that in some places of the United States there are Fat Tuesday donuts no more jazz. And uh, Mussolini is out there romping about. Good to know that when King Tut was being exhumed, life went on. And to this day, it continues to go on. And while it continues to go on, we will continue looking back at these news. So thank you so much for tuning in to In Other News. And remember, history is made every single day. Some of us may make it to the newspapers. Some of us may make it to the history books. But regardless, everything we do is a part of our collective history. So go out, make some history, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us again. Hope you'll join us to our next time traveling trip. Bye. Bye.